My name is John Redmond from First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas, and I want to thank you for joining us today on Peace by Believing. And on today's program, we're going to be thinking about how God goes about removing those things from our lives that don't need to be there. In John chapter 15, Jesus used an analogy where he said that he is the vine, we as Christians are the branches, and if we will abide in him and allow him to abide and remain in us, that he will produce fruit in our lives. We'll have love and joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit if we can just learn to abide in Jesus. In a nutshell, the secret to the Christian life is abiding in Jesus, and that simply means staying connected to him. By continual faith, we trust him no matter what happens. By trying our best to live a, a godly life, by being obedient, doing what God tells us to do, by keeping a good attitude, and uh, not having bitterness or anger or any of those things in our hearts, but, but having a right heart attitude towards other people. And if we'll do that, again, he's going to produce good qualities in our lives. Now, when Jesus gave that analogy, he also said that his Father, God, is the vine dresser. So sometimes God looks at the life of a believer, your life or my life, and he sees something that doesn't belong. He sees something that is preventing us from growing and and being as as fruitful as we could be. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's a poor use of time, bad time management. Maybe it's excessive spending. We've gotten ourselves in debt, and that can be bondage, or it could be a lot of different things. And so God begins what is called the pruning process. He begins to remove those things from our lives that don't need to be there. And probably all of us have things in our lives, at least from time to time, I know this is true, that God has to prune, that God has to remove from our lives. And that process is very painful. But in the end, we're always glad that God has taken things off of us that don't need to be there so that we can live the lives He intended for us to live. I'm praying today's sermon, certainly I hope it'll be an encouragement, but also that it will make you think about things in your life that don't need to be there and how God, even now, is in the process of trying to remove those things. What is true for plants is also true for Christians. Sometimes we have dead branches on the trees of our lives, as it were. We have things in our lives that are preventing us from growing and preventing us from becoming the people that God wants us to be. And so just like those yard guys went out there and cut those dead branches off and then new life grew, sometimes in your life and mine, God will identify some dead branches and He will cut them off so that we can grow. And so what I want to talk to you today about is how God prunes his children, the pruning process. If you'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of John in chapter number 15, I want us to just look at two verses today as we think about how God prunes us and how God removes the dead branches or the dead wood from our lives. This morning, we're going to be thinking about the purpose of pruning. Why would God do that? What is he pruning us of? And then the process of pruning. How does God go about getting those things off of us and out of our lives that we don't need? And then what is the proper response? How should we respond when God begins to prune us? Because we know that the pruning process is always very painful. In my life, any time that God has ever 
put his finger on something in my life or remove something from my life that doesn't need to be there, it is always painful in the short term, but eventually it's, it's a positive thing and it's good. So in John chapter 15, look in verse 1. Notice what Jesus said. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, let's just stop right there. Jesus is talking about Christians. He said, every branch in me. He's talking about Christians who, for whatever reason, have stopped abiding in him. They're not walking as closely with him as they have at an earlier season in their life. And as a result, they're not bearing fruit in their lives. And so, what does it say Jesus does, uh, that, he, that the Father does? He takes them away. That is, he takes them away from the position of fruit bearing. So they're no longer in the positions they would have been in earlier in life when they were bearing fruit. But then there's another group of Christians, the second half of verse 2. It says, and every branch that bears fruit. These are Christians who are still abiding in Jesus, still walking with God, still trying to serve God as best as they can. They're bearing some fruit in their life. Now, what does God do with these branches? It says, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so, those of you who are abiding in Christ and are walking with God and are serving God, still, just like in my life, there are things that can slow us down. There are things that can prevent us from growing, so God prunes those things right out. Now, what is the purpose of pruning? Well, you might want to jot this down in your bulletin. The purpose of pruning is to remove anything from our lives that would stunt our spiritual growth or hinder our ability to bear spiritual fruit. Now, I want to say that again. The purpose of pruning is to remove anything from our lives that would stunt our spiritual growth or hinder our ability to bear spiritual fruit. You say, well, John, what would some of those things be? If God's going to take some things out of my life, if I have some dead branches, what would be some of those things? Well, certainly sin of any kind would be in this category, or maybe if you have a fear, or maybe if you have a wrong ambition or a selfish drive, all of that would have to be dealt with. The purpose of pruning, again, is to remove anything from your life that could stunt your spiritual growth or hinder you from bearing spiritual fruit and being the person that God wants you to be. And so what is the process that God uses to go about uh, pruning us and getting that, those things out of our lives? Well, as I get into this part of the message last week when I was preparing this, I was just thinking about my own life. And I was thinking about times that God, and this, this happens to me now, when God will identify something in my life that's a dead branch, it's, it's not necessarily bad, but in excess, it can be bad. And so, I was just thinking of all the different ways that God has and does go about pruning off those dead branches in my life. And I want to just mention, this is just kind of my list. I didn't get this from some book. I just got it from thinking about my own life. First of all, the, the first way that God seems to go about pruning. Now, as we think about pruning, again, if you're out in your flower beds and you see a, a, sh a shrubbery or a small tree that needs to be pruned, you get your clippers. You go out there and you just begin to cut off the dead branches. And then the tree can grow. What we're thinking about now is, what are the clippers 
that God uses to get the dead branches and the dead wood out of our lives. Well, again, I want to mention some that he's used in my life, and maybe he's used them in yours too. The first thing I would say, God's first clipper is his still, small voice. God frequently will prune us through his still, small voice. In other words, something's happening in your life. Here's an easy illustration. Let's play like you have two college students. They're dating each other. They're in love with each other, and they want to marry each other. The only problem is one of them is a Christian and one of them is not a Christian. And the Christian begins to be convicted by God that it is not his will for him to marry this non-Christian. And so God just speaks to them and God just says, you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to love this person and pray for this person. Maybe at one point eventually to marry this person, but not until and unless they get saved. And so God might just speak to that person, and God might just say, still small voice, for now, you need to break this relationship off, and you need to pray that this other person will come to get saved, and then the relationship would be uh, the biblical relationship. So sometimes God will just speak to us like that. Another illustration, many of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers and his booklet, My Utmost for His Highest, and you know that he became a wonderful, wonderful minister for the Lord and served God faithfully and well, but when he was in his 20s, he was like most people, most of us when we were in our 20s, or if you're in your 20s today, maybe you sometimes struggle with this, or it could happen at any age, but he had all these dreams and all these aspirations and all these goals of things that he wanted to do with his life. And so as he thought about that, he wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to make a lot of money. He wanted to be successful. He had all these dreams. And his testimony is that one day he was walking across a particular street in the city where he lived, thinking about his own dreams, what he wanted to do with his life. And God's Spirit spoke to him and gave him a scripture verse out of Jeremiah chapter 45 and verse 5. And here's what God said to him. Here's what that verse says. Do you seek great things for yourself? And Oswald looked at his own life and he thought, well, you know, I kind of am. I'm seeking a, a, a successful career. I'm seeking to make a name for myself. And this is what I want in life. The verse says, do you seek great things for yourself? Then the next sentence says, seek them not. See, God spoke that to Oswald Chambers in a still, small voice. And as Oswald was crossing that street and God spoke to him, it was at that time in his life that he totally changed his life purpose. He totally changed his goals. And he said, I want to spend my life not trying to make a name for myself or any of that. I want to spend my life serving the Lord and seeking him. But God got his attention just through a still, small voice. And so we're always wise to listen to that still small voice because if we don't listen to it, God will turn up the heat a little bit and God will begin to speak a little louder and God will begin to clip those dead branches with a little more firmness and that can really become more painful. Now, the second thing that God has certainly used in my life, maybe he's used it in yours, would be the warning of a godly friend. Maybe you're about to make a decision or you're about to do something and a friend or a family member says, you might want to reconsider that. You might want to think about that. And many times, that is the voice of God through that other Christian speaking to you. And I think about my own life, how many times God has used a godly person to speak to me, and that has been part of his pruning process. I think about David in the Old Testament, King David. We're all familiar with the sin he committed with Bathsheba. He committed the sin of adultery. 
And Bible scholars tell us that for over a year after that sin, he refused to deal with it. He didn't repent. He just kept living his life. And during that season of his life, he was miserable. He talks about that in, one of the, in a couple of the Psalms, about the guilt and the shame. One day, a friend of his, a man named Nathan, Nathan was a prophet of God. Nathan approached David, and he confronted him about this sin. Now, he wasn't judgmental. He wasn't in his face. He was kind. He was gentle. He was redemptive. But nonetheless, he confronted David, and he said, in essence, David, you have sinned against God. And God used Nathan to bring David to repentance. David repented, and his life went on. But it was the warning of a godly friend that God used in David's life. And then as I think about this list, one of the ways that God seems to work most frequently with me would be through a restless spirit. Sometimes in my own life, maybe something's out of balance. Maybe I'm not spending my time wisely. Maybe something's just not right. And I begin to get a restlessness in my spirit. Maybe I'm not doing something I ought to do or doing something I shouldn't do. And I just get a restlessness in my spirit. This happened to me about five years ago. I would say for years before this experience, and it was just a strange way this happened, but I developed friendships with a lot of people in our community, I guess just because being a minister and being in funeral homes a lot, but I developed friendships with people at all the different funeral homes. I never tried to do that, but I just did. And there were a lot of times when those funeral homes would call me, just like there were other ministers they would call, but I was one of them, and they would say, John, we have a family who doesn't have a church home. Somebody has died. I know you don't know them. Is there any way you could do the service? Well, I did a few of those, and I thought, you know, this is a good ministry opportunity because in a setting like this, I'm speaking to people who don't go to church. I'm probably speaking to more unsaved people at at a funeral like that than I would be at at a church service on a Sunday at First Baptist. And so for years, I was doing, you know, a couple of maybe... I don't know, maybe two of those a week. And I felt like, well, the time I'm spending on those, I'm not doing what I would normally do at church. And so in order to do my job at church, I would say there was about five or six or seven years I just I didn't take a day off. Normally, I'm supposed to take Friday as my off day. And I just said, well, if I'm going to do those funerals, I can't take Friday off. So I went along for several years, didn't take any off days. And about five years ago, I began to feel restless about that. And I began to feel like when I would go to speak at one of those funerals, whereas in the past it had always been easy for me and very enjo- even enjoyable to, it was in, in, to try to help speak in that setting, I just, I was uptight, I was stressed out. The night before the service, I wasn't sleeping well, I just felt overwhelmed. And looking back on it now, it's clear, it wasn't clear then, but it's clear now that God was saying, you're doing too much. Your life is out of balance. You, 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 have, you can't work seven days in a row and never take. You have to get back to taking your day off. And so you can't do these services like you used to, at least not that many of them anymore. And so I had to make that change. But what I'm saying is it was a restless spirit that God, and I just thought something's not right, but God got my attention through that. Give you another illustration. My brother Joel and his wife Jody were up in Colorado a few years ago on a vacation. And one morning they got up and One of them said to the other, hey, it's a pretty morning out there. Why don't we go on a little short run and just kind of get our heart pumping at the beginning of the day? Of course, you know, in Colorado, the air's thinner, altitude's high. So they went out on about a three-mile run, and they they said that when they got back to the house where they were staying, that just neither one of them could about breathe. I mean, they they were just really winded. And one of them said to the other, you know, this is pitiful. Here we are in the prime of life, 
And we can, even though we're in Colorado, we should be able to run a three mile, we should be able to run three miles without getting this tired. And we just, this is not good. God would not want us to be this out of shape. And so they started talking about that back and forth. And finally, it was my brother who said to Jody, he said, I'll tell you what I think we should do. I think we should sign up for a marathon and start training for that marathon. Because if we have to train, we'll get in better shape. And so they did. They started training and they would run a little more every day, a little more every day. And they were telling me recently that at this point, they've run in five different marathons. They ran in a marathon at Disney World, Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C. I think Joel did the Houston Marathon. I don't think Jody did that one. But they've run in all these. I think they've lost their mind, honestly, is what I think. But they did that because they felt like we're not at peace with being in this bad a shape. And we've got to make a change in our physical exercise. And so they made that, that was a drastic change. And then my brother told me something as close as he and I are. I never knew this about him, but he said that he's always been afraid of heights. I've never heard him say that. And he said, John, I've been, always been afraid of heights. And I decided that what I needed to do was to face my fears because I knew God didn't want me to have anything in my life that I was afraid of. He doesn't want us to live in fear. And so they started finding high places to go to, to overcome their fear of heights. They've been to Pikes Peak. They've climbed to the top of Pikes Peak. And the next, next month, they're going to go to uh, Africa. They're going to climb to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, over 19,000 feet. They're, and when they take one of these trips, they always say, John, you want to go with us? I say, no, I'm not afraid of heights. I don't have to be on that trip. I'm just fine. I don't, I don't share that fear. So I don't need to be with you on that. But I think what happened in their case Especially Joel, Jody's just being going beyond the she's just been a fantastic wife to my brother. But I think what happened was he identified a fear and he said, I don't want this fear to be in my life. I'm restless about this. I'm not at peace. God wouldn't want me to have something like that. And so he confronted it. And so what I'm saying is when you get a restless spirit, like me speaking too much and not having the proper time off and to rest and to do other things, I think God said, You need to make a change. And so I made a change. I think with Joel, what God said to him was, you need to confront this fear in your life. And so they've been confronting that fear. But what I'm saying is when you have a restlessness, more often than not, that is God speaking to you. Maybe he's going to move you. Maybe he's preparing you for a change. Maybe something is in your life that you need to confront. But don't ignore that restless spirit because that is God. Remember, When we're right with God and our life is going in the direction that God wants it to go, that will always be accompanied with a deep peace. And so when we lose that peace and we're restless, all that means is God's trying to get our attention and he's putting his finger on something. That's one of his clippers, a restless spirit. And then another thing, and I've noticed this in my life and I know you have too, sometimes God deals with these things through a circumstance beyond our control. A circumstance beyond our, in other words, something will happen. Maybe you're, again, back to that, maybe you're in college and you're dating somebody and they break up with you. Maybe you're the one they broke up with and you're devastated. And you think, now God, the person I loved has broken up with me and I don't even know why they broke up with me because we're both Christians, but they broke up. And so you're devastated. And yet it may be that God is just, for whatever reason, maybe not for the long term, but in the short term, maybe you've become too dependent upon that person. Maybe you're depending on them and when you should be depending on God or you put who knows what it might be but there's a circumstance beyond your control something has happened and so God is wanting to teach you something 
God is wanting you to grow in some way. I'm not even always saying that God would cause those things to happen. Sometimes in life, things happen. God didn't cause it, but it happened. And so we have to say, God, what are you saying to me, and what are you teaching me? I'll give you another illustration. About a, close to a year and a half ago, I, I called my roofer, who's a very good roofer, and I asked him to come to my house, and he got there, and I said, as you can tell, on the front of my house, you know, under the shingles of a roof, there's plyboard. And the shingles are, are, are nailed to the plyboard. Well, I had two pieces of, ply, of plywood there that had kind of bumped up against each other. They were out of the joint. And I was afraid. First of all, it bothered me for two reasons. Number one, it didn't look good. And number two reason, I felt like those shingles could, could rip and then it would have a water problem. And so I called, he came over and he looked at it. And he said to me, he said, John, I can fix that, no problem. Well, I'm one of those guys, I hate, if somebody's coming to my house working on something, I hate to just stand there and watch him. I'd just rather give him some freedom. I said, listen, you do whatever you need to do. I'm going to be inside studying and just tell me when it's over, how much I owe you, and I'll write you a check. I thought he might go to my attic and somehow reposition that plywood from the inside, or I thought maybe if he went on the top that he would go up there and just, he could manipulate that wood without having to touch the shingles or move the, take any shingles off. And I didn't know how he would fix it, but that's what I thought he would do. About an hour later, the doorbell rang and he said, John, I fixed your, I fixed your roof. He said, I'm so proud of it. Come look at it. So I went out there to, to look at my roof and, and I noticed he said, look, the bump is gone. He said, the plywood, they're back in the joints. Everything is perfect. You're not going to have a problem. But I noticed when I looked at the roof that in order to fix the problem, he had had to pull off about 14 of my old shingles and put on 14 new shingles, which was good that he did. But I noticed it didn't match my old shingles. And so he was so proud of what he had done, and I didn't want to hurt. I said, man, it looks so good. I said, but, but I can't help but notice those shingles are not, are not exactly the same. And I didn't know it at the time. God was dealing with me on some perfectionism issues here. And I said to him, how long do you think it'll take for those shingles to fade in? And he said, oh, in a year from now, two at the most. He said, they're going to fade in. You'll never even know it because new shingles fade quicker than old shingles. And I said, okay. So every day I would leave for work and I would look at those shingles. And I would come home in the evening. And I said, well, it wasn't today. There was no change today. You've heard the expression that it's, it's as slow as watching paint dry. If you think it's slow watching paint dry, you ought to watch shingles fade. So on about the one-year anniversary of his repair, his repair work, I called him. I said, Victor, I said, I'm so pleased, no leaking, everything is good. But these shingles have still, still not quite faded in. I said, how much longer do you think it might take? And he said, John, let me refresh my He said, how old was that roof when I did that job, the original roof? I said, it was about eight years old. And he said, and the new ones have been on there for a year. He said, within the next seven years, it should fade in just right. <laughs> I thought, about the time I'm going to need a new roof, it's going to look perfect. And then I thought, I'm the only person in the world whose roof is going to look better as it ages because the new shingles are going to look more like the old shingles. And it just bothered me. And I thought about getting a company out there. And I know they can clean the roof and that would wipe, the, take the stuff off the old and then the old would really look like the new. I've looked into that. I've thought about, I thought about just ripping my whole roof off, putting a whole new roof on. I thought, well, that'd be stupid. That'd be silly to do that. One day I was looking at my roof, thinking about that. I thought, God, these 14 shingles about to drive me crazy. And it was like the Lord spoke to me, and it was like God said to me, John, those shingles aren't perfect. Your roof isn't perfect, and neither is anything else on planet Earth. Your house isn't perfect. You're not perfect. Your sermons aren't perfect. Nothing's perfect. 
And as long as you keep wanting everything to be perfect, all you're going to do is to be frustrated. But God just gave me that. And I have to be honest with you. If you come by my house, you look. if it's during the day hours, you'll be able to say, hey, I see your, notice your shingles up there. That aren't. But you know, when I see those now, it doesn't really bother me anymore. It may bother me just a little bit. But it doesn't bother me as, as much as it used to bother I mean, I can't lie in church. It still bothers me a little. But I'm trying to make, you know, lemonade out of this whole situation. But when I look at them now, in addition to a little bothering of me, but I, I look at it and I say, you know what? God is speaking to me. And God didn't cause it, but God is saying to me, remember, John, nothing's perfect. Well, that is so true. The only perfect person in the world is Jesus. And the only perfect place is heaven. And I think sometimes when we start trying to find perfection down here on earth, that's something God has to prune out of our lives. Nothing on this earth is perfect. We're not perfect. Our relationships aren't perfect. Our jobs, our houses, our cars, nothing's perfect. But we have to learn to trust God and accept those things in our lives. And so I hope today's program has been helpful for you. And I hope that you will have a fantastic week.